Good morning, everybody, and good morning, Renew. So good to be with you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you that we have the opportunity to come and to worship you publicly without fear of persecution. Thank you that we can come and listen to your word and hear what it says and apply it to our lives. So God, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see you more clearly, open our minds that we might understand you more fully, and open our hearts and our hands that we might respond in a way that brings glory to you. God, may my words fall down. May your words be lifted up as we see a glimpse of your glory this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always enjoyed reading, and when I was in junior high, one of my friends introduced me to this world of fantasy. And it was a brand new experience for me. I grew up and my parents had books about James Bond and they had uh, books about Sherlock Holmes, but there was nothing about fantasy in my house. And one of my friends in junior high said, Dave, you gotta check out this author. His name is John Ronald Rule Tolkien. And thought, I thought I would give it a chance, and my mind was open to something that I thought was beautiful. Why read about missiles and mystery and all the different things when you can read about dragons and castles and sword fights? I think one of the things that I enjoy most about fantasy novels is that these enemies seem so overpowering, so difficult, so incredible that you think, how on earth are these people going to win the fight? How is a young teenage wizard supposed to beat the greatest wizard of all time? How are these little kids who walk through a wardrobe and enter the world of Narnia supposed to impact that place? And how is a little hobbit supposed to destroy a ring? One of my favorite scenes in Lord of the Rings is in the book The Two Towers, the second book of the trilogy, in a story about Helm's Deep. The people have been fleeing their homes and they're taking refuge in the mountain fortress at Helm's Deep, but you can't hide forever. The forces of the evil wizard Saruman know where they are and they start gathering together thousands upon thousands upon thousands of orcs and evil creatures focused on their destruction. Every time one of these enemies was killed, two more would raise in its place. The first defense is easily scaled, forcing the defenders of Rohirrim back to the castle. And as the storm rages in the middle of the night, more and more of the enemy gather together. So what do you do? You just go back into that fortress and just hope that maybe they'll leave you alone? Or do you stand back and do you fight? The enemy is banging at the gates. Take a look at this video clip.
It would be easy to look at an introduction like that and go, what on earth does that have to do with me? It's not exactly like orcs are banging at the gate of my house, of my keep. None of us in this room feel that way. Or do we? What do you say to the woman in the young 20s who sat in my office and said, Dave, every time a particular uncle came to my house, I knew that after everybody went to bed, he would not knock on my door, he would just open the door and force his way in. What do you say to the man in his 60s whose story isn't that different than the woman in her 20s and said, my dad was a raging alcoholic and he would come home and I would hope that it wouldn't be my turn to get beat. I would hide under my bed but if he felt it was necessary, he would pull me out and he'd give me a whipping. What do you say to the people in our society right now who are overwhelmed by anxiety and don't know how they're going to carry on? What do you say to an acquaintance of mine who his wife committed suicide last week? Maybe not orcs, but there's an enemy trying to destroy you. What do you say to me when four years ago my wife lost her job? Then my tenants stopped paying rent. And then when we finally had them evicted, we found that our rental property had $8,000 of damage and I'm in cashing out investment after investment just to keep myself afloat. What do you say when one of your friends or family members shows up at your door and says, can we have coffee or can we just talk because my marriage is falling apart? I've been trying to hold it together for too long and I'm a mess and I have no idea what to do. When you look in the mirror and think, will my health ever get better? Is this the new normal? Will my kids, my spouse, will they ever choose to follow Jesus? Will those who I love stop making terrible decisions? When the suffering is overwhelming, there's an enemy at the gate. If you have your Bibles or phones with you, I invite you to open them up to Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible and would like a Bible right here in Traditions, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you in Renew. We'd love to give you a Bible at the Connect booth, or you could have one in your pocket all the time. You can go to bible.com app and download that right now. We are going to be in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. The Bible is a large book, but it doesn't have to be an intimidating one. Uh, open it up to the introduction where there's a table of contents. We'll be in Mark. You can find the page number there. The large numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers, the verse numbers. We're in Mark chapter 8. The book of Mark is 16 chapters long. So at the end of chapter 8, we have the part that's right smack dab in the middle of the book. Outside the death and resurrection of Jesus, arguably the most important passage in the entire gospel. 
Jesus looks at his disciples. In verse 31, he says that he began to teach them. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Skipping down to verses 34 and 35, Jesus calls the crowd along with his disciples and says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And Jesus is blunt here. He's also blunt with a man named Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. This is what we read in Acts chapter nine. This man, Paul, says Jesus, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Most of us in this room know how the story ends, but imagine you didn't. Imagine you were one of Jesus' disciples. You're in your late teens, maybe you're a young adult. You're working at your trade just like your friends, just like your family, you're just doing life. You've heard of Jesus. Maybe you even had the opportunity to go and listen to him. And you think to yourself, I have never heard anybody speak with such power and such authority. It is absolutely incredible. There's one story you heard that in the middle of a church service, Jesus is speaking and a man has a demon and he just casts the demon out. You hear other stories about how Jesus is healing people over and over again. And then one day he comes to you and he says, will you follow me? Will you quit the trade that you're currently in and will you be my apprentice? An apprentice not as a fisherman or as a carpenter, but in a whole new way of life. How do you say no to that? You're more than an eyewitness to these events. You're part of his entourage. Thousands of people coming to hear him preach and you're someone in the inner circle. Casting out demons and healing people, that's old news. You've literally seen Jesus walk on water. He calmed a storm with two words. He took a few loaves and fishes and he fed thousands of people. This has been an amazing story. And you're a part of it. And Jesus looks at you in the middle of this journey. No more parables. No more speaking in stories that are a little bit difficult to understand. But he looks at you straight. And he says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by the chief religious leaders and they're going to kill me. Three days after that, I'm going to be raised to life. And you're sitting there in shock going, what does this mean? The oldest friend, a guy by the name of Peter in your group, pulls Jesus aside and says, you can't say that to everybody. They might actually believe it's going to happen. You think that's encouraging to them? And then you hear Jesus says, I rebuke you, Satan, get behind me doesn't make it any better. You think these words are tough to swallow. Jesus then grabs the 12 of you and everybody else and he says, gather around, everybody, come listen to me. I have something to tell you. Listen to this. You in the back, come over here. I want to tell you this. If any of you in this crowd want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. I tell you the truth, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the good news will save it. What goes through your mind? I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Jesus, I'm not saying I'm going to stop following you, but there's got to be some sort of win here for me. 
there's got to be something in this for me because this doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. For the note takers in the room, we start with this, a future glory. The clip that I just showed you from Lord of the Rings, do you remember how it began? The army of Rohirrim had stepped back into the Helm's Deep. The enemy had easily broken through the first line of defense and was growing larger and larger by the hour. The army was ready, but the outcome looked bleak. The dark-haired actor, Aragon, says to his friend, ride out with me. Because he re remembered the words from Gandalf, hope is coming. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 4. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were speaking with Jesus. The book of Mark is sometimes referred to as the action-packed gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. And unlike Matthew, Luke, and John, Mark doesn't typically stay at one place for much time. He's moving fast, always going to the next event, and keeping most of his short stories short. We often read phrases like, as soon as they left, once again, in Mark's favorite, on the way. But here Mark is very specific, one of only a couple of times in the entire book where he says the exact length of time, after six days. Why the change of style? There's only two people in the entire Old Testament that takes place before the birth of Jesus whom God appears to on a mountain. Do you know who they are? Moses and Elijah. Moses was the one whom God had used to rescue the Israelites out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea, and begin the journey into the Promised Land. In Exodus chapter 20, the Israelites are all gathered together at the base of Mount Sinai. It's the chapter where God gives them the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapters 21 to 23 are a bunch of additional laws that God gives the Israelite people. And much like the disciples, they're probably thinking, well, what's in this for us? In Exodus chapter 24, God confirms his promise to his people. Listen to these words. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. The cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. This isn't the only similarity. Looking at verse 2, you'll notice there's three named disciples. Right here in Exodus chapter 24, we also have three named disciples, Aaron, who's Moses' brother, Nadab, and Abihu. In verse th uh, 3, Jesus is transformed before their very eyes. In Exodus chapter 34, we read, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. There's other similarities as well, which we'll look at in just a moment, about a tabernacle and a voice coming out of the cloud. But the purpose is clear to Peter, James, and John, as it was to the Israelites. This is a picture of future glory, like the one first shown to Moses. The disciples and Moses climb the mountain in a time of great discouragement. And the other man who shows up on that mountain with the three disciples is no different. It's a man, Elijah, the queen of Israel, a woman by the name of Jezebel, wants to kill him. I've had bad days, but nothing like that. This is what we read. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. 
When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. There's another reason Jesus invited Moses and Elijah to join him and his friends on top of the mountain besides the fact that he had met them before. You see, the Old Testament is broken up into three significant genres. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are often called the law. Sometimes they have other names like the Torah or the Pentateuch, but most commonly referred to as the law. The second major section, um, Joshua and following, is called the history. And we hear the history of Israel, how they take over the promised land, the land of Canaan, and up to the time in which they are coming back out of exile. The third part is called the prophets, men who would speak to kings, religious leaders, and the people, telling them both how to act and what the future has in store. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And Jesus is greater than them both. Back in Exodus, Moses is reflecting God's glory. Here, Jesus is radiating God's glory. Jesus doesn't just represent God's law. He is the fulfillment of God's law. He lives a perfect life, not once following short of God's standards, not once breaking any of the 613 laws that God has given the Jews. Jesus doesn't just represent the prophets, bringing God to the people. He is the arrival of God, having come down to God's people. Do you remember the hope that Gandalf gave Aragon in that clip? Out in the battlefield, they are pushing hard. With the enemy surrounding them, he looks up to the mountain and sees a man radiating in white. And he says one word, Gandalf. Hope has arrived. Future glory awaits. Verses five and six. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Last week, Peter pulled aside Jesus and he rebuked him, only to have Jesus turn around and rebuke Peter back. And someone was sitting right behind me and said, oh, Peter. You probably have people in your life who you think, man, I really like you, but just, just don't talk. In sports, there's a phrase, that's just Manny being Manny. When our three-year-old hasn't quite learned that there's more than two emotions in life. He hasn't learned about being frightened or sad or disheartened or frustrated. His two emotions are love and hate. Those are the only two words he knows. So he was playing away in our living room this past week, and my wife says, okay, everybody, it's time for supper time. And he goes, no, mommy, I hate you. I'm thinking, oh, you don't talk to your mom that way. So I pull him aside. We have a little talk about that's not how you talk to mommy. That's not how you talk to anybody. And so he comes back and he looks at his mom and he's very repentant. And he says, I'm really sorry, mommy. And I said, Hoxley, what are you sorry for? I'm sorry for hating you. <laughs> Hawks, it's better if you just don't talk. <laughs> just don't say anything. You don't quite see it here, but it comes up in Luke's account of the same story. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 34. While he, Peter, was still speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. 
Even God cuts Peter off. It's almost like God is saying, Peter, just don't. It's better if you just don't say anything. Looking at verse 5, how does Peter refer to Jesus? He says, Rabbi, which means teacher. He calls him teacher. He doesn't say Lord. He doesn't say Messiah. He doesn't say Christ. He puts him on the same level as Moses and Elijah. No, Peter. The very Son of God is standing before you in radiating glory. Jesus is greater than Moses, leading his people through a much more difficult exodus. This isn't the Israelites leaving Egypt. This is all of God's people leaving sin behind. We're, expect, we're escaping the penalty of sin. Jesus is the greater Elijah who will end suffering for all people. Jesus is the one radiating God's glory, not Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus is the hope of the nations, the light of the world, salvation of people. And here's the big idea. Jesus is the reason we can persevere through suffering because we know God is coming. I know Peter was afraid. I can't imagine the awe and the glory of Jesus radiating before your very eyes of seeing Moses and Elijah, men who lived hundreds of years before. But we don't need to build a tabernacle as a place for God to dwell. That would actually be moving backwards. In Jesus, God is dwelling among us and living on this side of history. He is now offering to dwell within us. Verses seven and eight. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud and said, this is my son, whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. If you have your Bibles or your phones open in front of you, scroll back to chapter eight, verse 27. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? None of the answers were correct. Two verses later in 8 verse 29, Jesus looks directly at them and says, but who do you say that I am? They answer correctly, but they don't fully grasp what it means. Then right here in chapter 9 verse 7, God envelops them in a cloud and God the Father speaks to them, this is my son. Listen to him. One commentator points out the uniqueness of this passage by saying it has no equal in ancient literature. You can read of magicians performing miracles, how other religions explain the creation of the world. There's a Mesopotamian account of the flood, but there is nothing in ancient history, nothing in ancient literature, nothing in which the scholar has come across that is equal to this passage here. He says it serves one major purpose to give his disciples hope to carry on. This morning we're phrasing it like this, persevere through suffering. Glory is coming. I'll wrap up this section with a quote by C.S. Lewis. This is what he says, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deepest desire. 
Glory means good rapport with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. And our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in the weight of glory. We start with future glory. We move towards present suffering. This is verses nine and 10. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? Imagine you were one of those three disciples and Jesus says to you, I know I just transformed before your very eyes. I know you just met people who represent all the law and all the prophets, who actually died hundreds of years ago. I know a cloud enveloped us and my dad spoke to us from heaven, but just don't tell anybody. How do you keep that a secret? It was my turn to host my small group this past week and I had recently painted one of my walls and done a terrible job. And I still said to my small group, look at this new wall I painted. How often do we want to tell people stories? Do we want to show off our newest electronic or car or house? How often do we want to tell a funny story or a shared experience? Jesus transformed before their very eyes and says, don't tell anybody. He gave them a hope of future glory in the midst of their suffering and says, don't tell a soul. It's not the first time this happened either. In Mark chapter five, verse 43, Jesus gives strict orders not to tell anyone about this. He had just raised a girl from the dead. And then he told, her to give, told them to give her something to eat. Why would he do this? Just a moment ago, I asked you to look at chapter eight, verse 29. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, well, what do you, what do you say? Who do you say I am? And Peter answers correctly. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But Peter doesn't fully grasp what that actually means. Peter may well be thinking about this prophecy in Isaiah 9 that we often read at Christmas. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And thinking this, Peter wasn't wrong. He just isn't entirely right. The prophecy is absolutely about Jesus. It's just not the whole picture. About 40 chapters later, still in the book of Isaiah, we read this in chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Peter didn't realize that the glory of the Messiah from chapter nine 
and the suffering servant from chapter 53 are actually the same person. He's not going to understand this until after the resurrection. And that's what Jesus asks of him. Jesus doesn't want people to see him as a political figure, preventing him from dying for his people. Because our hope isn't supposed to be placed in political parties, but in a resurrected king. Our hope is not supposed to be placed in a political party, but in a resurrected king. You might not be aware, but there's this little election going on right now. Small little under the radar thing about somebody who's gonna run our province. Some of you in this room have very strong opinions about who that should be. Some of you have very strong opinions that are different than other people in this room with very strong opinions. What kind of hope are you placing in that political party? Do you think that if your candidate wins, glory is coming? I voted. I'm not really happy with any of the candidates. But I've performed my civic duty, and to quote Pastor Mel from a sermon series on Daniel a few years ago, God is in control of the one who is in control. Our hope is not in whoever will be the next or current Alberta Premier. Our hope is in Jesus, and I know that through perseverance and suffering in this world, glory is gonna come on the other side. But before that happens, suffering takes place. Ever been in a car ride with somebody, and you have this awkward conversation, and then you go, oh shoot, it's still 10 minutes until we get to where we need to be. It's terribly awkward, isn't it? One of these awkward conversations I had with uh, one of my friends from college. He was engaged to be married and he was waffling back and forth if he should end the engagement or continue it on. And I looked at him and I said, friend, me and a couple of our mutual friends think that this engagement needs to end. It's not going well. Oh, thanks Dave. <laughs> oh shoot, <laughs> we're 10 minutes till our destination. This should be fun. How about those Oilers? The disciples had just seen the radiant face of glory, met Moses and Elijah, were spoken to by God, come down the mountain, and Jesus says, don't tell anybody until after my resurrection. The way verse 10 is phrased with how the disciples start talking with each other, it sounds as though Jesus is a few feet ahead of them, and the three disciples are talking amidst each other. Finally, one of them braves some conversation just not about the awkward topic we were discussing. Let's talk about something else. And in verse 11, they ask him, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? The last book of the Old Testament is written by a prophet named Malachi, and he closes with these words. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. The Old Testament ends. Most of the Jews believed in a literal return of Elijah, which Peter, James, and John had just seen on that mountain. And now they're trying to harmonize the prophecy from Malachi with what they just saw on the mountain. And so they ask, why do the teachers say Elijah must come first? Jesus responds with verses 12 and 13. 
To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. With that last line, Jesus confirms that Elijah already has come and there will be no literal return. The passage is actually referring to uh, to John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin. The opening chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 1, we read these words of an angel, Gabriel, appearing to Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father, Jesus' uncle. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He's speaking about Jesus. And he will go on before the, pardon me, speaking about John, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Words very similar to Malachi's prophecy. When I was studying this passage, I have the privilege of spending almost as much time as I need to get this right. But I kept reading these words from Jesus. And I kept thinking, okay, I've I've got to start writing, but what does this mean? How do we unpack it? What is Jesus trying to say? Here's what Jesus is saying. And as simple as I can put it, Elijah and John have come and they both suffered. The Messiah has come. He's standing before you and will suffer. Peter, James, and John, friends and family here at Ellerslie, there is no shortcut. Glory is coming. But there is suffering in the midst of it. So Dave, what's the application? There isn't any. It's an implication knowing that we must persevere through present suffering because glory is coming. We must persevere through final exams. Glory is coming. Persevere through political appointments that you may or may not want. Glory is coming. Persevere through bad management in a job you don't like. Glory is coming. Persevere through difficult relationships and what's happening around with friends and family. Why? Glory is coming. Persevere through children who don't act the way you wish. Glory is coming. Persevere through finances and health and tough decisions because glory is coming. In the face of challenges and difficulties, Whatever we're facing, persevere because glory is coming. The author of Hebrews writes these words, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We worship a resurrected king. And in the midst of our current suffering, in the midst of the challenges we're facing, how do we keep going forward? We can persevere through suffering because we know glory is coming. Can't wait till Easter weekend. Colton, I hand it over to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. And I can't even begin to imagine the stories that are in this room. The stories of challenges, the stories of difficulties, the stories of throwing our hands up in the air and thinking, what is going to happen? God, surround us with great friends. 
surround us with men and women who can help us persevere through the suffering because glory is coming on the other side. Lord, we thank you for a young man who grew up in this church, David McCormick, who's now working to help end some of that suffering in Guatemala. Fill him with your Holy Spirit as he works with orphans, as he works with the government, to give them a glimpse of the glory that you have to offer. Lord, we pray for this coming election. We pray that your person would be our new premier, and that whether it's the person we vote for or not, that we would know that our hope doesn't rest in political parties, but our hope rests in the King of glory, and that you are coming back. God, as we think about this upcoming week, that nearly 2,000 years ago you entered Jerusalem and you had quite the week culminating with your death on a cross and being resurrected three days later. May we be reminded that in the face of our challenges, in the face of our difficulties, glory is coming. And with all that you have given us, as we give of our tithes and our offerings back to you, that you would use it in our church, in our community, and around the world to tell about the glory of Jesus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.